Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Uh, good evening. Good evening, indeed. Also in studio, we're inviting back onto the program Taiwan-based freelance journalist Nicholas Smith. Good to have you. Good to be here. And we've got frequent contributor Yuan Ming Chao from the China Post as well in studio. Good to be back. And phoning in all the way from Washington, D.C., in the good old U.S. of A., we've got David Ahn, who is a senior research fellow at the Global Taiwan Institute, a think tank focused on Taiwan research. David, good to have you back. Hi, it's a pleasure to join you. On the show today, uh, well, we got our D.C. guy on the phone, so we're going to talk some U.S.-Taiwan ties as members of the U.S. Congress make proposals to strengthen those ties But the White House seems to be more concerned with its relationship with China. And then in the second half, statue gets decapitated, statue gets head replaced, Taiwan-Japan ties are reaffirmed. We'll look at an odd case of vandalism in Tainan that reveals just how controversial Taiwan's history can be. On a similar historical note, the government has made available more than 263,000 formerly classified documents related to Chiang Kai-shek, what might be learned there. Then, to round out the show, the government's new hot apps may be your cell phone's new hot security breach. We'll discuss why some officials are worried that the government's efforts to digitize government services may be making our phones more vulnerable to hacking. But first, Monday was the deadline to register to attend the World Health Assembly, the International Health Summit, coming up at the end of this month. Well, it came, and it went, and Taiwan's invitation to that summit never arrived. So Taiwan has officially missed the official registration. Seems pretty clear at this point that uh, pressure from China is the cause here. Don't really need to say suspected pressure anymore. But invitation or no, Taiwan is still planning to send a delegation, Gavin. Yes, this happened at 6 a.m. on Tuesday of this week when the deadline for registration for the World Health Assembly basically was up and no invitation was received by Taiwan by that time. Mm-hmm. So the government came out and said, oh, whoops, what should we do? And one government official said, we will come up with contingency measures to deal with this lack of invitation to the World Health Assembly. And about 10 minutes later, the health minister said, yes, look, I'll be leading a delegation to Geneva later this month anyway, despite us not being invited to the World Health Assembly. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the beginning of the week. Later on in the week, various government agencies, mainly led by the Mainland Affairs Council, came out and said various things about China. Basically, they blamed China for preventing Taiwan from attending the WHA. China, of course, did come out and admit that in a sort of roundabout way, saying Taiwan's refusal to adhere to the 1992 consensus and to accept the one-China principle means that questions continue over Taiwan's attendance at international organisational meetings. Basically saying that... Unless Taiwan adheres to these two rulings beliefs that China has, the 1992 consensus and the One China Principle, it will make it very difficult for Taiwan to attend any international events because basically Beijing wants Taiwan to talk to it before it attends any events at all. So putting all of its cards on the table right there. Meanwhile, though, there are some folks... uh, China was making the case that Taiwan actually will not be excluded from the technical portions of the meeting and that uh, officials will be uh, able to, you know, kind of 
make their views known in the medical circles and the important stuff where medical sorts of decisions are going to be made. Yeah, I love that quote. Here we go. A Chinese government official contended that Taiwan's epidemic prevention information exchange channels with the World Health Organization are good. I'm glad he knows that. I think, well, do you think he's asked anyone? And he went on to say that Taiwan can attend technical WHO meetings and WHO experts can visit the island if needed. So I guess there you go. China said it's okay. Problem so solved. So we can all jump up and down and go, woo, woo, woo. Just have to show the permission slip. Yeah. But uh, meanwhile, some Taiwanese officials say that that's actually not the case and that Taiwan will be barred from about half of all the technical meetings. So depends on who you ask, but it does uh, seem like Taiwan's presence at the meeting is going to continue to be contested regardless of whether or not uh, a delegation makes it over there. So this is obviously a political issue now that China has come out and explicitly said this is a political issue. But uh, one thing that we don't talk about enough on the show is the actual medical dimension to all of this, because this is, you know, people aren't just meeting just to have a meeting. They're meeting because the world needs to coordinate its efforts to prevent the spread of disease and make people healthier. Uh, And Taiwan, of course, plays a role on that. Uh, Now, Nicola, you actually uh, wrote an article for Times that uh, details that particular viewpoint on what what the world is really missing out on when it cuts Taiwan out of this process. Yeah, I mean, there, I think there are two aspects to this. It, it just it, it doesn't make sense. Yes, you know, there's a political dispute over this, but when you're talking about health, then I think you really have to um, take a logical view. Um, and a lot of health officials have said, you know, have pointed out, uh, look, you know, germs and bacteria, they don't, they don't adhere to the one China policy. They don't care. They cross borders, you know, um, at will. And um, so it's really in everyone's interests for Taiwan to be completely on board with, with um, every health meeting and every kind of um, coordinated effort to improve global health. It just doesn't make sense to, to miss Taiwan out. Um, the diseases aren't going to go away. And and so a lot of people refer to the SARS epidemic, pandemic in um, 2003 um, and medical professionals who, who were in Taiwan and, and prominent in Taiwan at the time said that actually being excluded from the WHO did make a difference because um, there were delays in getting help from the WHO. Now, you know, I I don't know um, if that led to more cases or not, but it certainly doesn't sound good. Um, And China, you know, being in, in close proximity to Taiwan, they're going to be affected as well. There's a lot of travel between uh, the two countries. And so it, it, it looks really like they're shooting themselves in the foot when it comes to health issues to to exclude Taiwan like this. I think um, President Tsai took a good approach on Twitter. She she pointed out um, Taiwan's contribution because as to to the global health because as well as as the disease prevention side of it. Taiwan does have world-class health facilities and research here. So it has a lot to offer the world. Um, you know, Cardiac arrhythmia and liver transplantations were given to me as two examples of where Taiwan excels and where um, the world can really learn from it. Um, you know, I'm sure there'll be other medical breakthroughs in the future, but it, it just makes good sense to, to be able to include Taiwan fully in, in international health systems. Were you impressed uh, by President Tsai's pun game? The WHO cares, Taiwan cares. Uh, did, you, did you feel good about those tweets? 
Uh, I'm not really a pun person, to oh, be no. honest. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was a clever play on words. You know, as as a slogan goes, then yes, so it was a it was a kind of good PR move. Yeah. I was I was pretty impressed. That 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 puts a lot of the comedy on this show to shame. Which I don't know if that says a good thing about Ty or a bad thing about us. But um, good job, Ty, on some of those tweets. David, I want to toss it over to you because we've also seen support for Taiwan's participation coming in from a number of countries, uh, including the U.S. We saw a number of congressmen and congresswomen voice their support for Taiwan's inclusion and the State Department, uh, which uh, you work for sometimes, uh, also stated their support for Taiwan's inclusion. Um, Certainly. Yes, uh, the U.S. uh, government, um, especially on the Congress side, uh, is where Taiwan enjoys strong bipartisan support, both on Republican and Democrat side, Um, and also within the executive branch, like you said, with the U.S. State Department. So speaking from my personal experience when I was at the State Department uh, uh, for six years, uh, this is where U.S. decision makers, people who work on uh, Taiwan issues, such as uh, people within the East Asia Bureau, Pacific Bureau at the State Department, will um, see that you know, Taiwan has been a strong partner to the United, toward the United States uh, for decades. So uh, with this in mind, the U.S. does support, uh, generally support, Taiwan's partici- participation in international organizations. And uh, just like Nicholas said, this is a matter of public health. Um, and it's a matter of, like SARS back in 2001, 2002, it was a matter of life and death. So these are important issues with the uh, World Health Assembly, uh, World, Ho- World Health Organizations. Uh, within the U.S. government, it's something that uh, the U.S. government people who are involved um, have seen this trend, you know, with the Kimberley process in Perth last week where Taiwan was excluded. Um, and also last year with ICAO, with Civil Aviation, or Interpol. So uh, given this trend, and also, you know, as you mentioned, uh, China's Ministry of Health has admitted uh, linking this with uh, cross-strait relations and the 1992 consensus. So this is something that uh, is going to be uh, less surprising, but also very disappointing because the U.S. government uh, strongly supports Taiwan's participation in international organizations, organizations such as these. Uh, Yuan Ming, just hearing all that, hearing you know the medical dimension, the international dimension, uh, what, what, what do you think that this is all going to mean for Taiwan? I mean, uh, last year, obviously, the, uh, Taiwan had a lot of uh, difficulty attending this meeting as well. This year, it looks like it's gone a step further even. Is uh, should we just see this as like another incremental uh, ratcheting up of the of the tension and the coldness between uh, Taiwan and China, or or, or 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 is this really different from the sorts of stuff we've seen before? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, um, I agree totally with what Nicola and uh, David just said, um, but you know, with regard to what you said about last year's meeting, I think China was uh, at that time still harboring a kind of wait-and-see approach because, you know, this was uh, um, just before Tsai Ing-wen came into power. So um, this was not really, you know, that invitation wasn't really geared towards the behavior of her administration. But now, uh, as we saw with um, the ICAO earlier, you know, Taiwan was excluded from that UN uh, meeting. And, um, and this is, you know, just a continuation of their 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 stance, this hardline stance towards Taiwan. And um, what should be mentioned was that Tsai Ing-wen, you know, during this week, uh, she also uh, floated um, a new page in cross-strait relations, you know, three new approaches. Um, but that was, you know, if this was any indication, uh, Beijing is, is, is probably not very upbeat on that. So I think 
this all points to what we should look at now is what Tsai Ing-wen might say or what she might uh, uh, propose during her first year in office after May 20th, her May 20th, if she gives any any remarks about her first year in office and whether that represents a, a new positioning of cross-strait relations. Of course, the WHA issue did lead to ammunition for the KMT this week, of course. They had their televised debate for their leadership election and all six KMT leadership candidates basically came out and their general consensus was vote for us and China ties will be OK and we'll have no worries joining the World Health Organization or other international groups. In fact, How Long Bing, I believe it was How Long Bing, the former Taipei mayor, described the KMT as being Taiwan's ace in the hole when it comes to WHA attendance. Mm-hmm. Well... That's the same sort of promise that we've heard from the KMT before, and uh, if didn't seem to get them too far in the last election. So we'll see if the recent trouble with cross-strait relations kind of moves that forward in voters' minds as an issue that <clears throat> may give the KMT more fodder in the future. Uh, one last question before we move on. I want to toss things back to David uh, real quick. So looking even beyond the U.S., just you know, internationally, with all of these countries, I think Canada... Uh, has also shown some support for Taiwan. With all these countries kind of trying to back Taiwan up, how much does that matter? How much is that going to matter to bolster Taiwan's position uh, in this situation? Or, or is uh, really, you know, in, in, in practical terms, is China really getting its way on this one? Um, it does matter. However, um, as we've seen over the past uh, year or so, more of a resumption of the previous uh, dollar diplomacy that had... Um, kind of diminished over the past decade, uh, but coming back. So uh, for Canada and other countries and the U.S. to support Taiwan uh, definitely helps. Uh, but for China to be uh, very assertive, very aggressive about trying to keep Taiwan out, um, that's going to be um, very, very effective, uh, we've seen so far. So um, basically, it's trying to balance uh, these considerations. Um, but really, uh, China's a key factor here, as China has admitted, and uh, what we mentioned earlier uh, about the Ministry of Health in China, talking uh, relating this to the 1992 consensus all right so uh, that meeting is coming up towards the end of this month uh, we're going to see where the chips fall but uh, we're going to move on from the story right now sticking with international relations but moving on over to u.s taiwan stuff taiwan is getting kind of mixed signals from the u.s these days uh, if you ask congress Love is in the air. It's puppies and rainbows. Uh, in fact, we just saw two proposals to strengthen ties over the last week. Uh, and the sponsors have nothing but nice things to say about Taiwan. Meanwhile, though, if you ask the White House, I don't know, it's just it's kind of weird. It's been awkward. It's just, you know, it's, it, it was good, but it's, it's just not the way it was before. It's a bit icky. It's a bit icky. I don't know. Yeah. Yes, the White House is reportedly conflicted about whether or not to move forward with a widely anticipated arms deal. Bit of a surprising turn for many observers uh, that saw the Trump-Tai phone call as a sign of strengthening support for Taiwan. So, uh, Gavin, let's take a look at those two proposals from Congress first. Uh, tell us about the trade proposal. Well, this was 33 members of the U.S. Congress writing a letter to President Donald Trump calling for Washington to include economic cooperation with Taiwan as part of a central pillar of U.S. trade policy in Asia. Apparently the letter said that Washington should prioritise a free trade agreement with Taiwan and such a deal would promote American economic interests and U.S. strategic goals. The congressional letter also noted that Taiwan is central to the global electronics industry and that the island plays an important role in supply chain security for this critical sector. 
All right. Well, meanwhile, so that was the proposal for trade. Meanwhile, six U.S. senators have actually put forward what they're calling the Taiwan Travel Act. That would make it more easy for officials from both countries uh, to visit the other country. Uh, right now, you know, it's very rare to see uh, high-level visits of U.S. officials over here in Taiwan. And, you know, when Taiwanese officials go over to the U.S., uh, often it's very low-key and there's some question, there's always some question hanging in the air uh, as to what degree of official niceties they're going to be getting when they go over there. Are they really going to be shown uh, the full <laughs> diplomatic brouhaha that uh, officials from other com- uh, countries might be shown. So this is basically an act supporting those kinds of uh, interactions and, and hoping to see more of those uh, kind of official exchanges. So those are the two... That yeah. one actually stems from a, a defense, U.S. Defense Act, a U.S. Defense <coughs> Policy Initiative that came into form last year, I believe, where it was part of the U.S. Defense Policy to up the ranks of military officials that can visit Taiwan from America and also up the rank of Taiwanese military officials who can visit America. Mm-hmm. They're sort of related, those two. All right. So those are the two proposals that uh, have come out of Congress in the last couple of days, kind of a two love letters uh, from the U.S. Congress. Uh, but meanwhile, we're seeing reports, Gavin, that an, an arms deal that was expected to uh, go into effect in late 2016 under the oh, still under the Obama administration at the time uh, is now somewhat uncertain, even under the Trump administration. Well, this is according to Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. He wrote this week that the White House is reportedly reluctant to move forward on that arms deal that you mentioned over fears that it could raise the ire of Beijing. And Rogan said a lack of administration consensus is slowing approval of the fairly modest one billion US dollar arms package. And apparently, according to Rogan's piece, some in the White House are concerned that the deal will rub China the wrong way as President Donald Trump is trying to get Beijing to do more over the North Korea issue. Right. So that's the way that this is seen by a lot of people. Uh, North Korea, the issues on the peninsula have kind of taken over and Trump is less concerned with uh, improving ties with Taiwan. But what he also he went on to say in this thing, Rogan noted that Taiwan could even end up getting access to more advanced U.S. weaponry, including F-35 joint strike fighters. Mm -hmm. This I question. Mm-hmm. So I, depending how you read this Rogan piece, you could take something away from the fact that the White House is all fingers and thumbs over the Taiwan <laughs> issue. Or you could take away, oh, Taiwan's going to get F-35 joint strike fighters. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a possibility, although the White House is probably all fingers and thumbs over the Taiwan issue. That's what I took away from it anyway. So, like all things under the current administration, a little bit difficult to interpret exactly what's going on. But uh, we got a guy that's a little bit closer to the scene who can help us out with all that. Uh, David, uh, what's the view like in Washington? Are we are we framing this the right uh, way? Warming ties from Congress, uh, slackening resolve uh, from the White House. Uh, w- what do you make of that premise? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, with Congress, uh, like I mentioned, strong bipartisan support. Um, as Gavin mentioned a minute ago about the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 last year that authorized higher-level interactions between U.S. military officers and Taiwan's military officers. Um, that one received 92 votes in the Senate out of 100 senators uh, for it and only seven against, I believe, one abstained. So we're looking across the board, uh, Republican and Democrats, uh, strongly supportive of Taiwan. So there's, there's, like you said, the love letters. 
um, these are ways that the U.S., this branch of the U.S. government is showing support for Taiwan. Um, defense uh, last year with NDAA and also right now with this uh, new uh, Travel Act um, that expands it beyond defense to other areas of government, to um, other officials outside of the Pentagon. So um, also when it comes to uh, the arms sales issue, it is something where we're seeing um, how the White House I mean, is, is less coordinated um, as we would expect, or are making decisions based on um, a wide range of factors. Uh, when I was at the State Department, um, I covered arms sales for several years, including working on Taiwan arms sales issues. Uh, we, we looked at the Arms Export Control Act. Um, so that's a law that guides U.S. arms sales decision-making. And there's over a dozen dimensions there about regional um, arms races and whether or not uh, the recipient can absorb the technology, and also including the regional reactions of the different countries uh, within that region. So there's, uh, there are these nuanced considerations for arms sales decision-making. Um, and as you mentioned, um, how Trump himself, uh, when asked about you know, a future phone call with Tsai, uh, then also tied, within the same breath, tied together Taiwan uh, with Beijing, uh, with North Korea. So these are all things that we're, we're trying to uh, find out what's going on inside the mind of Trump and the White House administration. Uh, you and a lot of folks. So just kind of looking at how this is all likely to play out uh, between these different branches of government, I think before the most recent election, you know, we, we saw uh, a lot of calls coming from the Republican sections of Congress. So that's where the pro-Taiwan sentiment is strongest is, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the Republican caucus. And so we'd, we'd get pretty regular proposals similar to what we've seen in the last week or so. Uh, but because, uh, you know, there was a Democrat in the White House, didn't necessarily take those proposals too seriously. It really did seem like the Obama White House was setting the direction for U.S.-Taiwan ties. Now that it's uh, Republicans across the board in, you know, the, uh, the House, the Senate and the White House, who, whose opinion is going to matter here? Is it still going to be pretty much the White House setting all the policy or, or does Congress have a role here? Uh, Congress definitely has a role because the executive needs to consult closely with Congress. Um, in the final decision, really, uh, the White House takes a strong lead, um, is, is more forward-leaning on this uh, final decision to move forward with arms sales, especially um, arms sales to Taiwan. In the months before that, there's a lot of coordination, there's a lot of discussion um, and meetings between State Department, Pentagon, uh, U.S. embassies in the region, AIT Taipei, U.S. Pacific Command. Uh, so, you know, back when I was in the State Department, we'd have all these different counterparts phone numbers, emails back and forth, conversations over several months. Um, but when the time comes, it becomes a, a very quick um, kind of streamlined process, a small number of decision makers. So either for town arms sales, either there's a handful of people within the U.S. government at senior levels, you know, State Department, Pentagon, White House, who currently um, might know, um, or there's a possibility that nobody knows because the decision might not have been made yet. So uh, maybe we're asking questions, but people have not yet decided. Mm. All right. Uh, Yuan Ming, what do you want to throw in there? Yeah, I wanted to add two points. Uh, one was that um, uh, the White House uh, pick for U.S. Trade uh, Representative um, Robert uh, Lighthitzer, he was recently confirmed by the Senate. And during his Senate confirmation hearings, he was really pushing for um, deeper economic cooperation with Taiwan. So this, uh, his confirmation could, you know, enhance those efforts that um, – that could deepen those relations. But of course, um, from Taiwan's side, that'll depend a lot on um, whether um, agricultural um, 
um, the agricultural market will be opened up to. And you know, um, in the legislature, that will be a very contentious issue for Tsai Ing-wen and the the ruling party. Uh, the other thing with, uh, I wanted You're to mention... You're talking about pork here. Yeah, pork. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And rectopamine. Good old rectopamine. Yummy rectopamine. Yummy, yummy rectopamine. Mm. Yeah. Muscle relaxant. Great. Made in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing was uh, related to the F-35s. Um, um, in that Reuters interview... Uh, uh, with Trump, you know, this was um, this was directly um, broached, and um, the president said he had to talk to his people about it. But um, from from you know the budgetary constraints of Taiwan's defense um, spending, you know, one of these planes costs a hundred million U.S. And even if you were to account for that eight hundred eighty billion infrastructure spending, if you were all to pour all that money into into that, you could probably buy about thirty of these planes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, definitely some constraints right there. Uh, Nicola, did you want to jump in? I mean, I, I think there's there's no need to hit the panic button yet. I, mm. You know, if if there's one thing that's consistent about the Trump White House's foreign policy is that it's completely inconsistent. I mean, it changes from week to week. Um, and Taiwan isn't exclusive in that. He He's all over the place, you know, practically all over the world. Um, so, uh, you know, at the moment, his priority in East Asia is clearly North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, that poses the biggest danger to regional stability and also um, a potential uh, danger to the US, you know, in, in just a few years' time, possibly in, in, within this current Trump administration. So I think that's just, you know, that's realpolitik, isn't it? I mean, at the moment, he has to prioritize that relationship with China to put pressure on North Korea. It doesn't mean that um, the Taiwan arms package is is just going to be completely cast aside. Mm. Um, you know, it may just be on the back burner just now. So I, I think people just need to just be a little bit, um, take a, a more pragmatic, calm approach and just see how things pan out. Mm. International relations is complicated. Who knew? Mm. <laughs> If I could add a little to uh, what Young Ming said about the F-35, um, I follow that issue closely I, because I worked at, uh, in Washington, D.C. in government uh, for several years. But as he said, uh, there's the price consideration um, and uh, the, there's also um, consideration, uh, a concern with uh, a decision that would involve uh, perhaps the uh, F-35 consortium. Uh, European countries that operate it, you know, Japan operates it. With a lot of U.S. equipment that the U.S. sells Taiwan, a lot of it's you know U.S. manufactured and just the U.S., so it's a more simple decision from the U.S. government. But the F-35 is going to be a more complicated political decision because there's so many users in Western Europe So um, because of the consortium. Um, but um, the, the benefit of that, as um, the, the Thai administration has mentioned with Taiwan's recent QDR, is that uh, Taiwan's going for the vertical lift, right? Um, so that's a benefit of having aircraft that don't need runways. Um, and also... The other benefit would be the potential interoperability with NATO forces, with U.S. forces, uh, because this is the same equipment that you're, they're using. So um, for me, um, the price uh, concern that Yang Ming mentioned is, is definitely a major concern, because as he mentioned, $100 million a piece to possibly $150, um, some reports higher, uh, compared to F-35, that is roughly uh, $50 million each. So you could get two or three F-35, uh, F-16s, uh, for the price of one thirty-five, uh, one F thirty-five, and you can go to Target today. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, 
A lot of question marks hanging out over all of this. A lot of big questions uh, that these policymakers need to decide as well. And I guess we won't know the answer to any of these questions until uh, those folks do make these decisions. So we'll be looking out for that. That is going to have to be it for the first half of the show, though. We're going to leave that topic there. When we return, identity politics are taking a tough toll on Taiwan's statues. We'll discuss why one statue of a Japanese engineer got its head lopped right on off. Then got another historical issue to look at with a huge document dump related to the government of Chiang Kai-shek. And we'll round things out looking at concerns over what may be some serious security problems with government-made apps. We will return in just a few minutes to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Yuan Ming Chao, Nicholas Smith, and David Ahn. First up for the second half, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys of history? All countries struggle with this question to some extent, but here in Taiwan, some of the most controversial history is pretty recent, and the disputes remain deeply felt. We saw a good example of this when a vandal cut the head off a statue of Japanese hydraulic engineer Yoichi Hata. The statue has been restored and it was unveiled to the public in a ceremony held earlier this week. But the incident reveals deep divisions in Taiwan's historical memory. Uh, Gavin, let's start at the beginning, though. This uh, all began about a month ago, uh, and the vandal behind it all was actually a former Taipei city councillor. Yeah, Li Junglong was the pro-unificationist Taipei city councillor who beheaded the statue, the bronze statue of Yuhichi Hatta, which is located near the Yushan To Reservoir in Tainan. He actually built the reservoir along with the Jianan Canal. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't just come here for holiday, he actually did a bit of work here. And he's been credited with this, you know, he helped give people fresh water in the Tainan area. Pretty useful thing, fresh water, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this former Taipei City Councillor, Li Jung Long, he hacked the head off the statue, walked straight into authorities and said, I know where it is, it was me, I threw it in a local piece of water. So divers went to the water where he said that he dumped it in, and they can't find it. They can't find it. They couldn't find a head. They still can't find the head. I don't believe they still found a head. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, they went, they put a new head on the statue of the man. They went they went to the Chimei Museum, I believe, in Tainan, and they have a different statue of this Japanese engineer, and they, they copied the head and they stuck a new head on the statue. Right. Anyway, that was unveiled last Sunday. Mm-hmm. They had a big ceremony unveiling the head, the new head, the new statue with a new head, I should mm-hmm. probably say there. Yep. When they, and the Tainan mayor said, yes, he is convinced that ties with Japan will become even stronger because of this, basically. Now, the statue was actually on private land. The, the, the guy that cut the statue's head off argued that, no, this is the government here. The government is putting Japanese, pro-Japanese sentiment above pro-China sentiment. Mm-hmm. Well, turned out to be complete baloney, that comment, because basically the statue is on private land owned by the Jarnal Irrigation Association. And it was and commissioned by was, that private association. By them, and it was put there in 1930, bloody one. Yeah. You know, I mean, slightly a long time ago, basically, yeah, before this argument even came into the fray. Right. But significantly, uh, you know, all of the contributions that this engineer made were made in the context of Japanese occupation. It was, and the guy from the Jianan Irrigation Association came up with a great quote. This was a guy called Young Ming Feng, and he said, well, I believe that more people now have learned about Hatter's 
invaluable contributions to Taiwan after the statue was beheaded. That's because true. Because they've all taken to Google and looked up That's who this true. guy was. Because of this anti-Japan vandalism, we all got a little history lesson, uh, is how that shook out. And Lee Jung Long got a bit of a legal lesson mm-hmm. because they're investigating him for vandalism and damage of private property. Yeah. So, Yuan Ming, I mean, this is pretty interesting because this uh, takes place in the context of uh, Tsai's ongoing project of transitional justice. We have seen during this proposals to repurpose the Chiang Kai-shek memorial. We've seen during this as well uh, vandalism of many Chiang Kai-shek statues. And so that would be coming from a very different political camp within Taiwan, the the folks that uh, do not view Chiang Kai-shek's rule over Taiwan positively would be from a very political camp, from those that are uh, don't view the Japanese colonial period positively. So, uh, you know, is, is there any lesson here, or, or is this really just the same story that we've seen before playing out again? Mm. Well, I think if we look at it really simply, maybe it's, you know, one man or one person or one group's nostalgia is another's glorification of authoritarianism or colonialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could put it like that. But, of course, it's more complicated than that. Than that. And as you mentioned, you know, this beheading uh, took uh, place in the context of other acts of vandalism. And um, I think um, this really points to the, the, the troubling, you know, unhandled, uh, post-war history in Taiwan, but also, you know, the, the colonial history of Taiwan. And I think this really requires, again, this, this sense of, you know, this is our history as, as Taiwan. And it requires, you know, a collective reconciliation of, of these truths together. You know, it can't be handled in a one-size-fits-all way. It requires communities to come together and to talk to each other and not just talk past each other. Mm. And, um, and if, not just cut the heads off statues. Exactly. Well, and if you look at, you know, Tsai Ing-wen uh, administration's um, transitional justice policy, um, it, needs to, it needs to be more broad-based. And if you look at, you know, s- what some aboriginal groups are saying, um, they've been left out of the process. So uh, we need more people in that process um, to be, and more involvement and more communication. One uh, of the things Lee Jung Long, the perpetrator of the beheading of the statue, did say was he decided <coughs> to cut the head off the statue in protest to see the reaction of the Tainan city government because he believes there'd been inaction by the Tainan city government in regards to the beheading and the defacing of Chiang Kai-shek statues. Mm. So he said it was a two-faced thing. So, he wanted to know what the government... The, the government was seemed to be tolerating right. the beheading and the defacing of Chiang Kai-shek statues and what would they do with this one and he made his point by saying well they kicked up a stink over me beheading the statue of a Japanese engineer but they have done nothing to stop or condemn the defacing of statues of former nationalist KMT heads of state and high ranking officials yeah so uh, a direct relationship there I mean just touching on what Yuan Ming was saying a second ago there are a lot of people that feel like the assets committee that's looking into the uh, KMT's uh, quote unquote ill-gotten assets you know, they put the dividing line right at 
the KMT's arrival in Taiwan. It does not extend back into the Japanese period. And uh, clearly there was a lot of land appropriation, asset appropriation under Japanese colonial rule as well. So that, you know, raises some questions about why that period is not also uh, being scrutinized in this process. And what did the Romans do for us? That is another way to put it. But clearly a lot of views uh, on this issue. Uh, Nicola, what do you see here? I just find the whole debate fascinating. I mean, the, the whole idea of transitional justice. I'm really, I'll be really interested to see what um, Tsai administration comes up with in this, uh, because it's in this session of parliament, isn't it? The, 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 the pledge to kind of come up with a few ideas and with the the 30-year anniversary of the end of the, the white terror coming up as well, it's a really kind of appropriate time to do it. Um, just on a pra- practical note, though, I'm a bit intrigued by this beheading of statues. I mean, it seems to be quite common. How, how do you actually do it? I was actually I mean, just thinking the same thing. With a hacksaw. That's like that can be very that can be very easy. It's like a though. meter of metal, though. I mean, no, it's, it's, a, it's a statue. It's not a solid bronze. Statues aren't solid, are they? They're hollow inside. Oh, uh, learn so, something. So you know. Not that I've ever vandalised a statue. <laughs> you did say you had a toolbox in the cupboard. Though, I did, yeah, just, that's rather yeah. things. It's uh, for totally legitimate purposes, that. Uh, David, uh, before we round out this topic, I want to throw it over to you uh, real quick. I mean, obviously, uh, coming from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. has its own set of symbols that it's been struggling with uh, recently, whether we're talking about the Confederate flag or the names of various schools uh, that harken back to uh, difficult parts in uh, U.S. history as well. So uh, what do you make of this dispute? Yes, the U.S. definitely um, has a lot of um, issues with history and uh, between the different uh, races here and ethnicities. So um, I think for the U.S. and also for Taiwan, it's about uh, reconciliation, uh, mutual understanding, and communication. Um, And aside from that, I uh, I agree with uh, the other uh, comments that I've heard so far from uh, Yuming and Nicola and yourself. All right, and real quick, before we uh, close out this little history lesson, we have one other history-related story to get to. Gavin, uh, there was a big uh, document dump recently. There was, oh yeah, this is um, Academia Historica. Not to be confused with Academia Sinica, this is Academia Historica here in Taiwan. And they've announced that more than 263,000 documents related to the late President Chiang Kai-shek are now available online for everybody to read after they were declassified, or some were declassified, should we say. Almost all. Almost, Almost all. all. That's what they brought. This, this, this is what I found interesting about this story, actually. They got a bunch of figures, a bunch of statistics came up in this story. Historians at Academia Historica say that the recent dump represents 98.8% of all existing documentation related to Chiang Kai-shek. Now, the remainder which hasn't been published online included 0.74% that is limited to viewing only at the Academia Historica's library due to copyright restrictions. I thought that was quite interesting, copyright restrictions. You know, maybe yeah, maybe it's some government report on Starbucks or something, so or McDonald's. That did throw me copyright restrictions. Never mind, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> some 0.5% involved privacy issues. You know... Without being facetious, I can't even go down that road. But 002 who's, who's Whose bedroom were they wiretapping? And 0.02% needs to be kept confidential permanently to protect intelligence sources. So, interestingly enough, still relevant uh, intelligence sources there's all the way back in the 70s and 60s There's a 130-year-old man running around in China <laughs> spying for Taiwan who can't be named. <laughs> no one would suspect him. No, I know. If he is there, we would want to protect that source. he doesn't move very fast. <laughs> exactly. Days. 
but he's, his ears work just fine, apparently. Uh, so, big document dump. Uh, we've been hearing about similar stuff like this, you know, the, the publication of various documents related to whether it be 228 or various aspects of the white terror era. So, this just seems to be part of that broader uh, project. Uh, you, you, Yuan Ming, I mean, uh, does this seem like a, an important uh, step in this whole transitional justice process that we're seeing? Yeah, um, I think uh, having access to these uh, documents, especially for specialized historians, um, is a boon for um, for finding, uh, for interpreting, for for reexamining um, assumptions. You know, uh, to to place them within the context of actual fact and documents. Um, the the thing that, that I found uh, that I find um, that needs to be followed uh, followed up on uh, apparently was that some of these documents concerning Chiang Kai Shek um, with this uh, with this institute um, um, apparently they're restricting access um, and I'm not sure if it's based on those uh, 0.5 percent uh, that Gavin mentioned was that um, some of these documents would be restricted to um, some scholars. Yeah, only certain academics can actually get them. Exactly. Um, and I think um, they will continue to bar uh, mainland Chinese uh, um, scholars and uh, scholars from Macau uh, from accessing this. And I think, you know, if um, in an ideal world, um, the study of history should not be politicized. It should go beyond all borders. You know, if we were to go to a U.S. archive today, um, I don't think any of us would be barred based on our nationality. So I think this thing should be examined as well, you know. All right. Well, we are going to leave those historical questions behind and move to our final discussion for the broadcast. Turning from history to technology, because uh, apps are in the news, uh, in particular, Gavin, government apps. Uh, The government has taken it upon itself to take some of its services, appify them, make them available right on your smartphone, which was nice of it to do. But it would have been even nicer uh, if the government had made sure that those apps didn't have a bunch of security holes in them. There is, Keith. And as we all know... There's an app for that. Yeah, this was the Cabinet this week, and it, apparently it came out and said that 98 government-made applications, those being apps for phones, render their users highly vulnerable to hacking. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And they said that the Cabinet members said they will pull the apps from circulation if improvements are not made by the middle of the month. Apparently only 20 apps out of a total of 140 made by the Executive UN's subordinate agencies passed all the tests conducted by the evaluators. Now, of the remaining apps, 23 were found to have four to six vulnerabilities and 101 of the apps have one to three vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Now, 98 apps failed the tests completely because they pose highly informational security risks. Mm-hmm. There you go. And when, when we talk about these security risks, we are talking about uh, they did not have good storage of sensitive data, according to the report. There were vulnerabilities in software, invalid certificates for servers. Uh, so a lot of bad stuff. Now, apps with six vulnerabilities included the Tien Kenner's attack by the National Science and Technology Museum. Doesn't say much for the National Science and Technology Museum if you can't make an app, really, you know. Really, <laughs> <laughs> you should change your name, that really. Is, Science and Technology should be out of that one. That's a little Anyway, A, the mobile water manager app by the Taiwan Water Corporation... Mm-hmm. The Taiwan Railways e-ticket app by the Taiwan Railways Administration. Mm-hmm. The Foreign Workers Little Assistant by the Workforce Development Agency. Do you think that bugged the people who downloaded it so they could find them? Uh, we, 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 we won't even speculate on that one. Yeah, we go. And an app called Accounting Mobile Go by the Directorate General of Budget, Accounting and Statistics. 
So I've actually taken it upon myself to download two of these apps. I downloaded the mobile water manager app. Um, I'm not sure what exactly... It doesn't really manage anything with that app. All that that app does is it gives you press releases from the uh, water corporation. So if you're wondering, like, got, why is the water not working in my house? Water pressure is down in Taipei's Dian district today. That's basically what you get in that app. Uh, I also uh, downloaded the foreign workers' little assistant. And they came and got you? Uh, no, 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 not yet. Well, maybe. I mean, I just downloaded it a few minutes ago. Who knows? Uh, but that one's kind of interesting because it's an app that's uh, made specifically for the uh, foreign immigrant laborers in Taiwan. And it's all in Chinese, uh, which would make it pretty difficult to navigate. It has a section... Especially if you just got, the, you just got an, air, an airplane from Ho Chi Minh. Exactly. <laughs> would make it uh, a little bit tricky. Uh, it it does. It has a section where you can uh, look for brokers. Interestingly enough, so that's the big service that they're providing. Uh, that's not. That's pretty awful. That that's really awful. brokers. You know what I mean? So I mean, you 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 run digital media at the China Post. You are the techiest guy in the room, probably right now. Maybe I don't know. I I, I don't want to count Nicola out, but uh, you you are certainly a techie guy. Have you ever downloaded a government app from Taiwan? I think I might have, but I'm not sure. I probably don't have any of them still on my phone. Um, the thing is, I also when I when when the story came up, I, I looked up and it apparently we can't blame the current administration for this. Apparently, uh, in 2012 there was this e-government initiative, and the government apparently allocated 250 million dollars NT to develop 278 apps. And and even you know a year ago there was already some some called to questions about the effectiveness the the reliability and also the relevancy of these apps. There were overlaps. You know, some apps were being uh, done by different agencies who were doing the same thing. Um, but a, another group weren't being... Um, they, some apps hadn't been updated for a year. Or, you know, some apps hadn't been downloaded by more than a few hundred people. So if you can imagine a government agency that has a few hundred people, not even the government workers are downloading the apps that they've made so um yeah this was at the national level this time yeah. but they had about two months ago they had it at the, the regional level where a bunch of local governments came out and the taipei city government we'll stick to the example there taipei city councillors were up in arms over the taipei city government's releasing of apps and they they reviewed a bunch of these apps and they came out and they found that a staggering number of them were completely useless because what the government the, the taipei city government had released them to great fanfare and then not updated them. Mm-hmm. So that you basically, people were downloading these apps to find whatever, and then they wouldn't change yeah. for weeks and months on end. Yeah. So it's basically, it's, it's, at a, it's at a central government level and a local government level. To be fair, though, uh, when I downloaded the Water Agency's app, it had been downloaded 50,000 times, wow. although it only had a 2.1 star rating. So, you know, you, got, you take the good with the bad. The, uh, the, the, the Little Workers app, the, the, the Workers Little Helper app, app uh that one had only been downloaded 10,000 times so not a not a great number there uh, nicola would you ever consider downloading any of these apps no <laughs> actually though the, the migrant um workers one has given me an idea like, that'd be a great place to start for an investigation and how brokers are ripping people off now we know how to find them through the <laughs> yeah. app, at least. but we didn't say the brokers on the app were actually ripping people off we didn't, but some I think it's, it, it, would, it could be a good starting point. Might but, be ripping people. <laughs> allegedly. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, my I think my mobile phone space is, for storage is, is very precious, so I, I'm quite selective about apps. But I, I, I think the whole point on 
apps is that it's all very well to kind of try and get down with the cool kids, but you have to do it properly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to kind of do it really very professionally. Does the SNP have an app? I have no idea. Well, do you think I'm an SNP supporter? (laughs) Is that the assumption? (laughs) David, uh, do you think that uh, Taiwan's government has any chance of getting with the cool kids with their apps? So um, I I work on broad international security issues to include cybersecurity. So um, my big concern right now, I think if, if there are vulnerabilities with apps, you mentioned, uh, Keith, about uh, data storage security or a connection, a security of the connection, um, I hope that there's people within Taiwan's government working uh, 24-7 right now to patch those uh, because those are, those are uh, vulnerabilities that uh, can be concerning if there's private information, if there's uh, equivalent to social security numbers, uh, birthdays, uh, things that could be hacked. Um, so uh, in terms of it being, the vulnerabilities being released before patches are released, that's, that's curious because um, in the U.S. there are these big uh, cybersecurity conferences where thousands of hackers would actually go uh, to attend in Las Vegas called Black Hat and also called DEF CON. Um, and I've, I've previously been a, a speaker at DEF CON uh, in front of uh, this audience. And uh, their principle is that They'll have hackers, you know, fully wrapped up with scarves and sunglasses in front of a microphone uh, from the group Anonymous talking about their hacking exploits. Um, however, their rule is that if you're going to reveal a vulnerability, you, the rule is that you need to inform the company and, and give them time to patch it first. You know, you can't reveal a vul- vulnerability um, if it hasn't been patched because then it will alert other hackers and then uh, that app could be a target, an attractive target. So uh, it's my hope, um, based on uh, my experience in cybersecurity, that Taiwan's government is, is working hard on this. Um, not just patching this app, but the next step after this is to hire what's called pen testers, penetration testers, which are um, hackers, um, which are ethical hackers, hackers hired by companies or government to try to hack the software to see if the, it can withstand um, hacking. So this is like the next level uh, for uh, app, app application security. What's interesting is that all this came out in today's papers, the, in the Liberty Times and the Apple Daily. The police are questioning like 60 people here in Taiwan at the moment over a massive personal data leakage. And according to the Apple Daily and the Liberty Times, 170 million pieces of personal data were collected by this one brokerage an illegal brokerage to mine data and they were basically selling this information to real estate agents and property developers for like between 150,000 and 200,000 NT for one piece of personal data. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, so that just gives you a sense of the vulnerabilities. Uh, David, real quick, before I rush to delete these apps from my phone based on what you just said, do you think that it even makes sense for uh, Taiwan's <laughs> government to be making these apps? I mean, uh, obviously, Taiwan's government wants to up its uh, uh, technology credentials. It wants to be more innovative. It wants to, to be a modern government. But if it doesn't have the resources to really do this right, should it be doing this at all? Um, I think that it's it's um, it's re- it, that the Taiwan government should be doing it in a in a responsible manner. So um, I think it's better that they're that they're trying rather than not doing it because then government's really falling behind from pri- private companies, even universities. Uh, so I applaud the government for making this move. Um, but instead of just alloc- allocating a budget to create the app, you know, as we heard uh, from Gavin, but to push the budget into sustaining and maintaining the app, updating the data, and especially to patch the vulnerabilities and to make sure that you don't leak this kind of personal information. Uh, here in the U.S., there are really very famous uh, hacks against Target 
uh, company here that resulted in loss of uh, thousands or millions of credit card uh, numbers. And this has a, not only a financial cost, but a reputational cost. You know, um, people would be hesitant to trust this company, and that influences the stock value. And when your stock drops, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, that's a wake-up call. So uh, these things could be serious issues, um, and I would strongly encourage the Taiwan government to, to patch these ASAP. All right, and uh, we are coming up on the end of the show, and uh, none too soon, because it's about time for me to uh, delete all of this. I'm getting more nervous by the second. It's an Android phone. What do you expect? All right. Anyway, we are going to move on to our final story for the podcast portion of the show today. Uh, we always like to end with a little bonus podcast story, usually on the lighter end of things. Uh, and Gavin, uh, this week in Taiwan, not in other countries, but in Taiwan specifically, we're coming up on Mother's Day. Yeah, it falls on May the 14th here in Taiwan, Mother's Day. How Is there all- a pun? Is there like a Chinese pun that makes that make sense? Well, for Father's Day, it's Bob, Baba, right? Baba. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. That's what I was thinking of. Anyway, it's Mother's Day tomorrow, (laughs) Keith. Thank you for reminding me. That's May the 14th here in Taiwan. And um, the online job bank, Yes123, did a survey earlier this week about the percentage of office workers in Taiwan here that plan to celebrate Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. And apparently... 90% 90% of office workers said they were budgeting 5,544 NT on average to spend on celebrating their mothers. Okay, that's more than 100 US. It's almost 200 US. It's 183.7 US dollars. Thanks for clearing that at up. At the exchange rate on the day that this article was published. All right, so that's that's a chunk of change. Yeah, yeah. Apparently the poll showed that 90.1% of office workers plan to celebrate Mother's Day this year, with the percentage being higher than the 87.4% recorded in a similar poll last year. And apparently that's the highest number of people who are going to celebrate their mothers in four years. Mm. So there you go. <laughs> what a thing to keep statistics on. I know, it's an amazing. Here we go. Somebody's got to And apparently the 5,544 NT budget is up 42.6% from last year. And also the highest in four years. What, the familial piety is off the charts. Yep. Now, the online bank said that calculations... The online bank said that... The online, the online banking website said that calculations were based on the country's 8.906 million employees, workers, office workers, so 8.9 million office workers. And they reckon that Mother's Day celebrations create up to 44.49 billion NT in sales on Mother's Day. All right. Of course, if you happen to want to go out for lunch on the weekend of Mother's Day and you don't celebrate Mother's Day, you might as well forget it because you're not getting a table at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plan ahead, everybody. You got to plan ahead. I plan to go out tomorrow, and then suddenly realised, or it was pointed out to me that we're not going to get a table. Oh yeah, so because for... all these ninety point one percent of office bloody workers will be going down there spending their five thousand NT. Yeah, so uh, all you sentimental fools out there are ruining Gavin's dinner plans. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, you should go home, <laughs> buy your mum an Xbox. All right, so uh, Nicola, I mean, yes. uh, more than five thousand NT spending on Mother's Day—that's pretty good. That's a that's that's a lot of love for mothers here in Taiwan. That's also a marketing win for for <laughs> people selling Mother's Day gifts as well, isn't it? That's the polite way of saying. I said that earlier, <laughs> and it wasn't the polite as that. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a lot of flowers. Course, are you going to spend the five thousand five hundred and eighty-eight NT on your mother, or are you going to have like a bunch of people sitting around? Because of course, there's a big difference. If you just spend it on your mum, that's one thing. Mm. 
But if you invite a whole bunch of people to sit around and you're sharing, divvying up 5,518 AT, your mother's not getting much of it, is she? So does that research not say what that money's been spent on exactly? No, no. We, need, we need to audit these Mother's yeah. Day festivities. I, I, I think the research is a bit inaccurate then, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's misleading the, us. Apparently the online banking website said that the budget increase is due to strong demand driven by an economic recovery. Bankers, they can't just say the thing, can they? Now, apparently this the, the, there's going to be more money because more restaurants and bakeries and department stores and hypermarkets will be having special promotions. So you buy more for your back, I guess. There you go. Uh, a win for capitalism and for mom. Uh, Yuan Ming, uh, 5,000, is that within the realm of possibility? Are you going to drop 5,000 NT on your uh, family obligations? Wow. Um well, maybe there should be an app for for like uh, all this uh, statistic uh, collecting, but to, to to measure your love for your mother, an app for that. Yeah, a Mother Day Mother's Day app. But mm-hmm. now, no, I mean this this is the thought. It's the thought that counts, right? So. <laughs> oh, uh, I hope Yuan Ming's mother is listening right now. So it's- you can Skype her and wish a happy Mother's Day, and you won't spend a penny. And it's the thought that counts. No, that's not what I meant. I, I mean, I think. I think it's really interesting that um, data like this is being collected, I and mean, it goes back to to what Nicola was saying. I mean, I mean, we should we should really you know really mine this data and see like uh, what are the the actual intentions behind you know the collection of it and 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 what further uses are going through this you know mm-hmm. but i mean come on happy mother's day I happy mean. mother's day is the <laughs> main sentiment david are you going to be uh I, mother's day has already passed in the u.s i believe are you going to be uh celebrating uh taiwanese mother's day as well um well i mean 5000 nt could buy a lot of flowers and a lot of mother's day cards um so um i i would uh, except i'm in washington dc and my mother's in california so that's a five hour flight away uh, so uh, at the moment, it's phone calls, it's sending flowers, uh, unable to fly out just to have dinner. Um, but we celebrate other ways. and We have a chance to meet in person. There we go. See, we're going to end on that sweet note uh, to kind of counterbalance all of Gavin's cynicism right there. So I'll just leave it right there. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That's it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Time with this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Starts right about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, any other place where you might expect to find podcasts, really. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, guten bye. Joined as quite often by Yuan Ming Chow. Thank you, Yuan Ming. Good to be back. Uh, also want to thank Nicholas Smith. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to David on all the way from the U.S. It's a pleasure to be here to join you tonight. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time at Taiwan This Week. So, double-checked, and yes, of course, this Sunday is Mother's Day in the U.S. as well. My bad. I just assumed it would be on different days. I don't know why. So, I'm kind of dumb and also a terrible son, apparently. Sorry, Mom. Anyway, happy Mother's Day to you and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Have a good weekend, guys.